A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Samia Rahman, Director of Data and AI with a focus on product at life sciences company, CGen. I asked Samia to be on because of her background with Data Mesh while at ThoughtWorks. She's done a number of pieces of content and her focus on getting going with CGen's Data Mesh implementation. The general topic was on interoperability and standards, not just for data mesh, but mostly focused on data mesh. There are two things I took away from this interview. The first is don't try to plan too much ahead for developing interoperability standards, but definitely keep an eye out for places where you could start to develop those standards. And your standards really, really should evolve. You don't have to nail them right out of the gate. The second is your interoperability will also evolve. You don't need to make every data product interoperable with every other data product. And you can start with basic interoperability first. The more you can standardize around unique identifiers, the better, but it's okay to not get it right first thing out of the gate. You can evolve your data products and you can evolve your thinking. We left the definition to the end, but for Samia, interoperability is about taking information from two systems and combining them to get a higher value. A simple definition, but a good one. Samia started her career, and even before in school, focusing on software, especially end-to-end development. A repeating pattern for her has been how crucial contract testing is to getting things into a trustable and scalable state. We've had them in hardware and software for a long time, and if you don't have easy testing, those systems often get replaced pretty quickly. Those tests are the safety net to allow for fast and reliable evolution. 
and that evolution is a key theme for this conversation. Set yourself up to iterate and evolve as you learn. Work to not paint yourself into a corner. So again, we need to figure out how we apply these same principles to data. Samia's new role at CGen, which is a life sciences company, isn't where her domain knowledge historically has been that deep. Data standards, including specifically for interoperability, are kind of everywhere in the space. There's FHIR, the FDA has some, lots of other ones. But it's still not great for truly sharing the meaning of the data. FAIR is a is trying to get there, but the interoperability and domain knowledge isn't really standardized yet under FAIR. To get to interoperability, there needs to be agreement on the unit of information exchange, but that's still very difficult. Samia strongly recommends not getting ahead of yourself on interoperability and standards. It's perfectly okay to start small. Iterate and build on your standards for interoperability. To start, have some key identifying quote-unquote linkers done. Get things out in front of consumers so they can explore and give feedback and use that feedback to power your iteration. Incrementally building towards a standard is crucial rather than trying to start with a standard right out of the gate. If you're going to build a standard, reusability should be your first goal. If it is only for a single use case, that isn't a standard. It's just an implementation detail of that single use case. Samia again recommends contract testing slash a schema checker and definitely try to leverage existing standards. There are some that are out there. Again, there aren't a lot that are really great, but go and and look for them. It's also not a huge deal if you have more than one standard internally. You don't need one standard to rule them all. Per Samia, if you implement versioning, data consumers are usually very willing to work with data producers as those data producers evolve their data products. But without versioning, you are just pulling the rug out from underneath those consumers. And right now, there isn't a lot of good info on versioning data out there, nor the tooling to make it easier. The need to evolve data products is why absolute self-service is probably never possible. The human in the middle is important to help consumers evolve their thinking as the business model evolves and as the data products evolve. Samia mentioned the data consumer responsibility to inform data producers, inform them, inform them about needed changes, issues with their data products, etc. We can't have data consumers going off and all creating their own fixes to data quality issues. The data producers need to know so they can fix them at the source. Juan is Rosier has talked about some of that in his episode as well. You need to be on the lookout for interoperability opportunities. Say that five times fast. And you validate that there is a need for interoperability. An important point is that not all data needs to be interoperable. Samia finished with her interoperability vendor wish list, some kind of tooling that can more easily detect when someone should use an existing standard, and that you can put those standards in front of data product producers much more easily. How can we make it very easy for data product producers to build in interoperability and leveraging and leverage existing standards from the start? This is really one of the first episodes that's really dug at all deeply into interoperability. So as you start to think about 
how you're going to work on interoperability in the long run, I think this is a really crucial episode to kind of jumpstart that journey for you. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Super, super excited for this episode today. We've got uh, Samia Rahman, who is uh, one of the people who's put out a lot of very good content on Data Mesh. She she was at ThoughtWorks. She has moved over to CGen, where she's the director of data and AI and has kind of a product focus. And so has a lot of experience in, in and around Data Mesh. Uh, specifically, she's not representing CGen. Uh, these are her opinions today, but um, you know she's got a lot of really interesting content to, to add here. And what we're going to be talking about is kind of within life sciences, they've really focused a lot on standards and interoperability, and, and thinking about that kind of data sharing. You know, Jesse Paquette from Tag Bio had talked about this as well. That there are standards, there are things within life sciences where it's been a bit of a pain to, to get to, but they've got these standards. And so how can we think about those problems that have been addressed and partially solved or you know that they're in a better spot than the general industry? How can we apply that so that we can do kind of really good things around data mesh? So with that, uh, Sami, if you could give a little bit of a background on yourself and, and uh, kind of how you came upon data mesh, and uh, then we can jump into the kind of questions and conversation at hand. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I am a hardcore technologist, I would say, grew up with an engineering background, uh, and then I got pushed into software technology, started out my career doing a lot of end-to-end software engineering, all the way from like firmware to surface software in oil and gas, then shifted into ThoughtWorks, uh, where I got a lot of uh, awesome opportunities. And my systems thinking background uh, became very relevant to data mesh. I like to see the end-to-end spectrum of all the way from transactional systems to uh, the data traveling into a machine learning system. So that theme has been uh, consistent throughout my career from the young days to now. And I had the opportunity to work with Jamak, met her just around when her article was published and embarked on my first project where I got to uh, try it out and uh, use my software engineering background um, and apply it to my data uh, generalist knowledge and kind of scale it out to uh, the entire spectrum. So that's how I ended up in that data mesh landscape. And I've been doing it for, I want to say, uh, four years now, 2022. I've lost track of time. Uh, started <laughs> out in 19 and it's 2022 now. The, um, I've done it, I want to say, tried it out right now, trying to execute it for a third time. So done it twice so far. Yeah. And, and I think it's funny that, um, 
know, if you look at Jamak's background, Jamak even has um, uh, patents and stuff in the hardware space. So I think that cross-functional um, understanding is is where, especially wh- whether it's from software into data or it's hardware and uh, data and all these different things, I think that's been people who really get <laughs> what the power of a lot of the things we've learned from so many different disciplines and applying it to data because data has so much been technology focused of the way you solve this problem is by buying this technology and this technology is the single thing that enables you versus like, no, it's the collaboration, it's the easy path, it's all of those things. So yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting how many people that I talk to that are are doing this that um, really have those that kind of cross-functional background. So is there anything uh, that you think that you've really learned from the, the hardware side or the software side that that's really helped you think differently when you're talking to, to data people? I think I saw a lot of similarities, I think, over the last decade where um, w- when I started out working on hardware, we were building pattern recognition algorithms. Now it's called machine learning. Uh, but back then, pattern recognition was a class in my engineering days, and I got to work with a physicist uh, to implement it. But the code was... Uh, really scrappy. It was done with the lens of a data or I want to say a scientist who didn't know how to optimize the code, right? But they knew the physics, they knew how to convert pressure signals into zeros and ones and all that good stuff. But I was the software engineering that got to a software engineering uh, partner who got to pair with them and really optimize it and make it real time. So it was a fun learning experience for me to see how something as simple as a machine pulsing out pressure, which contains information and data gets converted to zeros and ones. And then you process that in real time so that you can get that real time insight, right? So that's that's how far back or low level my knowledge went into. And I, along the way, it was very important to realize you need contract tests throughout the spectrum, firmware to the hardware, to the software, to the data, the algorithm, you need simulations. Uh, so to me, those kind of th- themes were recurring when I started to be more of the uh, software microservices kind of uh, world of best practices uh, is where I ended up at. So to me, the best practices have never changed. It's it's applicable throughout the spectrum. So now in, in data mesh or in the data world, people talk about data contracts, right? I'm like, we've been doing contracts at the lowest of levels uh, in terms of the firmware or the hardware that's there. So if you don't have those contracts or contract tests, those devices struggle to evolve, those systems struggle to evolve, and they get chucked, and then new systems come out. Um, so to me, there's a lot of, uh, I want to say, uh, correlation across the spectrum, right, in terms of the practices. Yeah. That's an, I, uh, I don't think I've heard anybody say it that kind of way of like those those tests allow the faster evolution. It's, it's, it's that your safety net, right? Like everything that I think we're trying to apply to data is that data has been kind of this high wire act without a safety net. It's, it's, you know, and it, it, or 
maybe it was somebody that was walking across the balance beam that was two feet off the the ground and it wasn't that that big of a deal. But now it's kind of the main show in a lot of places. Yeah. So it's a high wire act and it's a lot more dangerous if you get it wrong. <laughs> so we need that those safety nets so that we can get ourselves into the right place to be able to execute well and that that we can recover and, and that I think that's that's uh, a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought of before. So um so the 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 general topic at hand uh, is within data mesh there are a lot of companies that are trying to develop their own interoperability, their own standards. Everything is kind of bespoke right now within each company. So what I've been trying to, to push people towards is how do we find these standards? How do we, we do this stuff so that that it doesn't have to be everybody building everything themselves from scratch? And so I think this concept of what life sciences has done with these different um, these different standards is really, really important. So, you know, how have you seen this evolve? How you, you, this is your third time kind of looking at, at data mesh. I don't know if all three were in, in life sciences, but like without these standards, how much harder would this be? And then like, how do we kind of flip that around as to how do people start to develop these standards? What 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 are the, the things that they need to look at? Yeah, I, I think um, I was, w- when I started looking at life sciences and the health healthcare space in general, uh, it's not my domain knowledge. I think domain knowledge is the hardest thing to like learn and then capture in words. Uh, so even in my past, when when I was when I was in oil and gas, domain knowledge was again the hardest thing. You can be a brilliant software developer or a data person, but if you don't understand the domain, it's going to be really hard to get to the value. So to me, interoperability, those standards uh, emerge for reducing that burden on people so that we can actually quickly get the value out of the data or exchange the data with whatever two parties or two uh, entities are involved. Um, so in in the healthcare space, when I landed, there's the FIRE standard, which I learned about. Uh, then in the life sciences, there's a wealth of, uh, or a bunch of standards that the FDA has said. There are many regulatory bodies across the world that have various standards, uh, uh, along with standards for how they exchange image data, or uh, it's not my wheelhouse, but I know there's like alliances like the Pistoia Alliance, where, where they are trying to uh, encourage those kind of standards to emerge for getting the data all the way from the way they do the studies to how they uh, actually develop a drug. But what what I've been learning over the last couple of years is that it's still not really there yet. Uh, That's why I think back in 2016, FAIR came about with that motivation in the life sciences spaces of the struggle of, hey, we don't really have a lot of standards and we need to start making a dent on that. And I think FAIR uh, calls out for that interoperability factor, but also uh, that the data needs to be understandable. So they have a whole framework by which you can achieve that. But I think executing the framework is what I observe as can be challenging because that domain knowledge, again, people use different words to mean different things. Um, It's not standardized in life sciences. Um, I, I think in general, 
if I even think back to my like high school days of sciences, uh, I could use three or four different words to describe the same thing. I'm drawing a blank right now um, for a good word, but like I guess molecule and atoms and things like that could be that those could be misinterpreted for being something different, right? Like in terms of the unit of object that you're talking about and the context really matters. So to me, the, the, the semantic layer, uh, is really essential for us to get that acceleration, um, and interoperability, uh, will help us achieve that so that we can exchange that data in a very meaningful way. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, customer is kind of the one that, that most people go to for the semantic kind of garbage, right? <laughs> of This means 70 different things to 70 different domains or, or things within the company. So um, you hit on this, like, that even when you've got the ability to interoperate at the technical level, it may not have the interoperability at the actual semantic or meaning of the data level, right? It, it's kind of um, just because this is a number and this is a number doesn't mean that, that they're at all referring to the same thing. Even if it was, if it was age, you know, it might not be interoperable because one might be in uh, days, one might be in years, or it might be age since, and one might be, you know, um, the uh, the age since the very start versus age since X happened or what, you know, just, just all those fun things. So um, the importance of, of that semantic, people are trying to solve a lot of problems in data mesh with the technology. And so when people start to talk semantics, they start to talk knowledge graphs and things like that. But even with these standards, what you're saying is that you can't always just do the tooling. Is is that the right way to think about it? Is that the tooling only gets you somewhere? So you need to have the metadata come along with it. And, and how, I mean, big, big, big question, but then how do you do interoperability when the semantics can be so different, even if you're adhering to a standard? Yeah, I, I think the interoperability at the tooling or the data exchange layer, those have been really solved for, right? Because I can have an API, I can have XML or SAML was a protocol back in the day. Now it's um, API responses are in JSON. Those kind of like formats are all prevalent. But I think when it comes to that, agreement on the, this unit of data means this uh, word um, and it has this accuracy or whatever that is, to define that and agree upon that across the industry or in a given discipline, I think is challenging because it, it, or I, I think it can be a lot of analysis paralysis as well, because many people are trying to collaborate. So who do you decide is the final authorative, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that word incorrectly, Who's the who has the final say in saying that this is what the true label is, right? So people talk about business glossaries, that human level of putting the meaning to the data or that uh, metadata for understanding it, it really has to come from the data experts or the, or the SME of that domain who understands it. And I guess there's technology in the sense that you can use natural language processing uh, to kind of help 
identify the collection of words that are prominent to kind of support this means, but they still have to do some amount of work to say, yes, this is the right word. Or um, in, in this context, it does mean X. Uh, so to me, that I don't think will ever go away. The person who produces the data still has to apply and provide that context. So that responsibility um, uh, and the domain-oriented ownership that Jima calls out is an essential thing. Uh, and to achieve that interoperably, I think that's like a core construct, right? So if without that, I can I can put a API or a data set out there, but it's of no use, no value. So um, one thing that, that you, you kind of started with the, there needs to be agreement. And then you also talked about that the owner of the domain, it's on, incumbent on them to share this information. So, you know, that, that's that push pull, that centralization, decentralization that a lot of people have talked about on a lot of the episodes of there isn't an answer, but if you were to think about, or, or you know, you you have done this internally, right? There's there's external interoperability standards, but there's also internal. How do you think about applying what you've learned about the absolute? Um, we'll call it a CF instead of the actual term, but uh, you, you know, the very very uh, difficult, messed up uh, cluster of of issues that comes with. Um, trying to create these standards. So like, how would you, you, this is your third time. Like you've seen how difficult this can be. What advice would you have to somebody about that? Is it that you try to have interoperability standards simply at the, by temporality level or at the, the ID level or whatever, and that that's good enough or, and, and how much work do people have to put in before, before they have to go down right. that, that path? People are, again, that analysis paralysis. So like, yeah, people are just really, really kind of worried about interoperability biting them by not, not getting it right. So yeah, what, what can we do to give them the uh, roadmap, but also the permission that it's okay to not have it solved at the beginning? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I went to this webinar uh, uh, that Pistoria Alliance uh, facilitated. Um, it was a really good one. And I, I keep hearing the same things, the same advice we do in software world, start small. Um, I, I think I've, I've been putting together, build the earliest explorable data or API contract, whatever you want to define that standard as. And then you want to keep iterating on that standard. It's not going to be built in one day. You need to keep iterating on it, learning on it, and updating the standard. And then over time, hopefully, it becomes stable because you have higher numbers of adopters who are giving you the feedback. Um, and uh, that that should eventually lead to that interoperability that's desired. And I think... There are different levels of interoperability, like for my MVP data product, for example, I might just want to have my identifiers, the key critical identifiers, uh, linkable um, and have those standardized in meaning, uh, the name of the uh, uh, attribute, etc. But do I need to really care about all the uh, all the descriptor attributes? Maybe not. 
right? Because I'm just getting this data set out there for exploration now so that the data scientists or the application developers who want to explore it uh, can get some meaning out of it, work with the SMEs. So we want to create that um, little mind hive or a working collaboration group of uh, the data expert along with the data explorer, along with use cases uh, to kind of keep iterating and finding, okay, does this uh, word mean the right thing? Am I using it in the right way for this use case? And all those lessons learned from that is what you then iterate and update your API with. And that's how I think you incrementally get to a standard. I, I don't have a lot of history on how Fire was developed, but I imagine it wasn't developed in one day. Someone had to release some version so people could try it out. And then from there, it kept uh moving forward and now it is where it is because there's been years and years of effort. I see that with a lot of the data sets in um in in the life science spaces as well. They they they've been established over time because they were identified as critical data sets and people start working on it incrementally. And and uh by the way uh, when you're saying SME, I'm assuming that means subject matter experts, correct? Yes. Okay. Just wanted to make sure uh, on that. But I, I think this is really interesting because where I think a lot of people are feeling this analysis paralysis is that you like traditionally data, again, I've, I've said this on a lot of podcasts, a lot of episodes, but once you've started creating some set of data or some, you know, what whatever, if it if you consider it a data product or a data set or a table or a view that's been locked, right? Changing that has been very, very painful for consumers. And it might be that the producers just change it and the consumers are just stuck with it or that the producers upstream change something and it breaks that, that view or that whatever. So people are really locking on don't change, don't iterate, don't evolve. And so that that's I think just part of of talking with your data consumers and being like, hey, we're gonna do a, a you know evolution, but it's controlled evolution. It's not chaos. It's not just sudden breakages. It's like, hey, if you're consuming from this, we need to have that information, and it's no longer we're asking into the void. We've got tooling that tells us that somebody's consuming from it, but like that iterating towards standards internally scares people from what I've, I've talked to them on because you might have, you might iterate towards five different standards, right? JP Morgan Chase, uh, when they did the, the data mesh learning meetup, they talked about having, I think they mentioned like 600 high level domains and like 1500 total domains uh, within domain driven design kind of concept. So you might have these fiefdoms of interoperability where you only have interoperability in between these um, certain groups and pods and things like that. Is that a concern to you? Like, is that a, is that a, a five years down the road concern that you've got to start to start to, to solve that once it becomes a big enough challenge or does it, it limit the value of the data mesh if you can't, you know, interoperate these group of 50 domains and this other group of 50 domains in a super crucial way or? Yeah, I, I don't, so I, I don't think 
it concerns me because I, I find it that when you're building with the version controls, with the con- uh, the controlled environments, your contract tests, if you put in those right guardrails, like we've done in microservices world, there could be duplication. We've also observed that in microservices. Uh, but you you have tooling like performance monitoring of how much of a data query is happening. And that can inform you in terms of how you might want to reduce that duplication that's happening, right? I I think uh, as soon as you, uh, one of my uh, uh, friends mentioned the Goldilocks process, like don't pinhole yourself to just one use case, like the attribute of being reusable that uh, the fair, uh, principles call out is also important to kind of help manage that. So as being a good producer or a product owner, you're, you're monitoring that and you're making sure you're not doing duplication. So that interoperability, uh, becoming too many interoperability or duplicate interoperability, uh, standards, um, in, in, in a very complex domain, that doesn't really concern me because you should have a feedback mechanism. I think there was a use case that I saw from Saxo Bank. They're able to use schema checks. Uh, I think I, I, I can't remember what they called it, but I would call it like your schema compatibility or a schema checker across your domain enterprise model, right? And that should give you information if it already exists. Uh, we do that with APIs. Like, I'm not going to go build another microservice if the standard exists, right? Um, I'm not going to go rebuild Fire if Fire exists. So leverage established standards, I think, is a guiding principle that everyone should be using um, as a general practice. It's encouraged um, from organizations like the FDA and the life sciences spaces Leverage prior knowledge, leverage prior standards, right? To get that acceleration you might want in developing drugs. The same with healthcare. Don't reinvent the wheels. I think that guiding principle along with a smart tooling of, hey, let's give people or the people who develop these standards uh, a feedback mechanism. I think I can, uh, it can abate those kind of concerns. What if you were to flip the concern about is this domain, are they going to be able, you know, if, if they've got their data product, can they actually adhere to this other, st- you know, if they've got to adhere to six standards, to me, I think that um, duplication of work isn't necessarily the worst thing when it comes to your data products of having like okay, well, we've got this data set and this table adheres to this standard and this table adheres to this standard. Is that how you've seen it work? Or is that something where you're just not that concerned about it? Or it's it's like something that comes up when it comes up? Or Yeah. Well, I guess when it comes to serving the data to the customers, if there's six agreed upon standards, you would project your data depending on the demand on those six different standards, right? And the cost of implementation around that, I I think can be abated because you build out those core reusable data products to stitch those pieces of uh, data to serve that fit for purpose standard data. I I don't think that that should be 
uh, too difficult in the sense that you've already verified and validated the underlying upstream sources. So now you have a lot more confidence in serving that out. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, the scaling of like, I, I would question why are there six standards, right? If they're industry standards, sure, that makes sense. But um, if, if there's opportunity for the six standards to be simplified and um, to like, uh, again, doing domain-driven design or appropriate domain modeling to say, okay, this, this standard fits this purpose, right? So I think it's all, it should be driven by the use cases and um, the number of customers it serves. I think a standard is only beneficial if it serves multiple people, right? Uh, or multiple use cases. Um, if it's just like one downstream customer, doesn't really need to be a standard. It could be a standard in the future, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's not really a standard if, if multiple people aren't applying it, right? So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the fear is again that there might be these these fiefdoms that that, all work together to generate their own standards or things like that. And it sounds like a lot of what you're just saying is you in a, um, a forward thinking, or, or I, I'm not thinking of the exact word right now, but kind of in a well-organized and non overly political type of organization uh, that, you know, you won't have those those issues, but if you do have those issues, you can kind of iterate out of it. I think that that's been, uh, you know, people are afraid that if I'm serving with this API, that I can't break my API because again, you if it, the consumers are like, you can never change what you're serving us from data perspective. And we've got to get out of that, and and if you get past that, that you can you can evolve these things and you can create standards and, and throw away standards, right? Like that your, your whole mesh evolves. If, if you're like, yeah. we were going down this route and it's just not serving what we want. So yeah. we're going to rethink this. So I, I, you, you said something interesting. You said customers don't want to iterate or change. I, I think it, it depends on the landscape. I've seen customers willing to change. They want their data to be enriched of better quality, et cetera. So they're okay with the change as long as they're informed about it, right? You can't, I think what was happening in the last couple of years is people were not versioning their data. It's a very simple concept. We did it for software. We did it for firmware. We do it across all the layers of how we deal with data. But for some reason, when it came to, came to like this analytical plane or the data warehouse plane, we forgot the best practice of, I need to version the data. I need to do incremental rollouts if I have a massive number of consumers so that I can keep them happy. You would never do that if you had a vendor partner consuming your data. You would inform them ahead of time. But we forget to apply the same kind of standards and practices, think internally. And that's why all these, I guess, frustrated people emerge within the organization and it becomes a finger pointing problem. Uh, so I think in general, like when I look at just the analytical tooling landscape, we've encouraged a lot of uh, bad behavior to continue in the past, but it's changing dramatically right now, right? We have the data ops movement emerging. Uh, there are many technologies out there that are supporting that. Um, 
but I think it's, it's customers were frustrated because of the lack of, uh, just basic sensible defaults that we've done in every, in every other part of our technology space. Um, and I think fair came about because of that frustration as well, right? It's like, you got to version the data set. Don't upset me <laughs> with bad data or uh, unversioned data. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's when you start to talk about what data mesh means for, for data consumers, they are very afraid because exactly what you talked about of changes have meant breaks instead of changes have meant we're, we're evolving and we're, this is sensible and it's, it, there's a reason for it. And that it's not just the whim of a software engineer broke everything that, that we're consuming. It's like, this was done with intentionality and we're going to version it and we're going to tell you when this is, is happening and we're going to make it so that you have an easier path to migrate and that it is in the, the greater scheme of things that it's, it's better. But, you know, there are still some people who just want to have their same report, even if it doesn't make any sense, that that same report just keeps happening and happening and happening. Um, I, I had this a, a lot when I was in the stock space of there, mm. there was a lot uh, that we tracked around kind of hardware um, around how much inventory was out there. So that, cause it was about selling semiconductors. So if there was a bunch of inventory, then people didn't need to buy nearly as much, even if they were doing better. But once they all started buying up software companies, the, the metrics really started to change because they didn't mean the same thing. So it might be that somebody had, you know, 90 days of inventory. If they had 90 days of inventory, when it was, 100% of their business was selling hardware, that might not be that big of a of a deal. But if they had 90 days of inventory when 50% of their business was software, it meant that they actually had 180 days of inventory relative to their hardware business. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a lot of what you're saying is the, um, the kind of well-functioning organizations. In those not as well-functioning organizations, is there some something that you think that that there's a way to get people involved and in line with this? Yeah, I, yeah. I've I've been um, or I've been in situations like that. I, I want to distinguish the consumer here for a minute. I think there's the insight consumer, the person who's gonna make a decision based on the metric in your use case, right? Um, the business has changed though, so. If the consumer is not aware, I think what I observe is the report consumer or uh, they're so far removed from like the operational side or what's happening in the business that they don't see the impact on the downstream, which is where they are at, and they need to update their thinking. So to me, whenever there's a business change, that end-to-end, -end, all the way from operations, the data uh, starts from your transactional systems or whatever impact it has, has to go all the way to all your downstream systems. And there needs to be that awareness. And I think what we failed, or often I see people failing to articulate that with, hey, our business model has changed, or we are observing our business model change. And that's why this report needs to evolve with a justification, right? And I think 
that has been the challenging bit. And it, it's really that art of enlightening or being that product manager, right? Understanding your product really well and then uh, informing your customers. Uh, unfortunately, we can't really make it self-service because our customers also have some kind of business expertise. So you have to collaborate with them to truly define what is that end metric. Um, and so th this reminds me of, I think, organizations that are too disconnected. They might not be business outcome oriented. That's usually a smell, right? Because everyone is in their boundary of, oh, I need to deliver 10 reports. And that's how they're measured, as opposed to I am <laughs> making this much impact on the business outcome, right? So I, I think it depends on the organization's um, what do you want to call it? The operating model or the way they define the success metrics across their groups um, that can uh, that can uh, uh, create uh, that gap to be or make that gap a lot bigger than smaller. I think this being business oriented or mission oriented really solves that problem. At least I've been seeing that. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of what you, you talked about are, are those kind of well-functioning organizations as well. Of, yeah. of, um, I, I liked what you, you mentioned about the, you can't be fully self-service because, so East Oldfield on his episode kind of talked about this, of there's self-service in the way of you can get to the data, you can get to what you want. And somebody may have compiled insights, and that person is now owning that insight as a data product within the data mesh. And that's great. And, and, you know, consumers are able to get to it. But um, you can't be fully self service around insights, because that just doesn't make any sense, right? Like somebody brings their own context to what they're looking at and you want to make sure that you're sharing as much context so they can understand what they're looking at and then they apply their own um, yeah. knowledge and what they're seeing and saying okay what what is this actually doing to inform me further so a lot of this yeah. is is <laughs> it's really making clear what i've kind of heard as through lines in a lot of things right like it's it's that you're just summing up so many things in such a, a good packaging to make it actually make sense instead of just kind of random sentences that have been kind of sprinkled throughout a, a lot of this. So this is, this is super helpful. And, and I think one emerging theme for me has been, it's always a shared responsibility model. If you think about cloud has standards, API standards, fire has API standards. We have a shared responsibility model. If we find something incorrect as a customer in it, we inform those standard owners or data owners that, hey, this is incorrect, and then we correct it together, right? So I think the, the degree of that responsibility model, we want to minimize the burden on the customer, but there is always going to be, I, I think, at least in the data space, there has to be uh, some kind of a responsibility on the customer of, yes, the, this insight is correct or no, doesn't make sense because our business landscape has changed. So I think that collaboration model needs that mod, uh, the shared responsibility mindset as opposed to I've thrown it over the line, now it's your responsibility or I've, I, you've uh, broken the report so it's not my responsibility and it's the finger pointing game again. Yeah, I, I mentioned this in, in the Slack that I just 
watch this webinar and um, some folks at, at Go Data Driven, they, they had talked about that exact same concept of, of there being a responsibility of you see something, say something, right? And that there's what we've had is that the data producers and the data consumers, they if they are ever talking, they're not in the same room. They're talking through tickets or they're talking through data engineering or whatever, and that, that you need that collaborative model. Um, and it's, it's just kind of uh, funny to me how um, these same themes keep coming up, but I haven't seen them really written down anywhere of like, because a, a lot of this for the ones who have been in a, in a collaborative environment in a well-functioning environment, it kind of feels like the, you know, not, not in the way some people say, saying the quiet part out loud, but saying that the, what feels like the obvious and the, the, the background noise of going, no, like we actually do need to say this. I, I saw somebody talking about, oh, it, it's so brilliant to, to be managing your data products in GitHub. And it was like, what, people aren't doing that? What? <laughs> this is software. There's this, still people who don't do it. <laughs> this is software, right? Like if, if we're doing these things as software, yes, you should be managing it in, in Git in version control of some sort. So, so I, I think a lot of that has been or bad behavior has been enabled by a lot of the technology that's out there. And now you're paying the price, right? I, I hate to say this. I have nothing against uh, all the technology that's out there. It's great. But none of them for the last couple of years, I, I want to say they started shifting that in the last two, three years maybe. But prior to that, there was nothing about you do code versioning for data as well. You do CI/CD pipelines for data as well. And then this whole notion of data ops and analytical ops um, is, is very missing. Like there are some great reporting tools out there, but there's no form of code versioning. So a report that's been running in production is running unversion. It handles critical data. And then it can, it goes offline often because no one has established the right practices, right? So I don't blame the people who are actually implementing it. I think, again, it's that shared responsibility. People, these technologies haven't really come said that this is how you, you use the technology in the best way. It, it's always the last thought of sharing uh, with the people who are developing, so. Yeah, fully. Uh, a lot of what you're saying is is just dead on. And, and that's where I think Jamak has talked so much about there needs to be new tooling that, that comes up and that, that really, um, it's been a, uh, a constant issue for a lot of folks. But um, so a lot of kind of where we can talk about going forward on this is how do you recommend other people to approach these challenges? Like what, what are the things that, that people can do? What are the, um, like if somebody were to, to start out looking at how do I think about interoperability? How do I think about standards? Like, is it just kind of <laughs> develop it from your first, uh, data product interactions and then start to figure it out from there? Or cause people are trying to solve it before they get moving. Yeah, I, I think it's a two-pronged approach in the sense that you want to understand uh, your data landscape, talk to your 
do the research, do interviews, surveys, whatever that is, to identify opportunities of interoperability if that's not very well known in your industry. Because I, uh, at least in life sciences, it's a very clear, uh, uh, the, I, I want to say the value chain is like molecule to market is something we use at my company, but it's the same across all of pharma. And there's so many data silos. So interoperability, because data flows all the way from research downstream to com- like commercializing the drug that's been uh, developed. So to me, uh, there's a very clear need uh, for interoperability in that landscape. So that's one thing you want to validate that there is a true need and then identify those first few products that are actually valuable and require interoperability. Not all data needs to be interoperable, I think. Um, And you can start out by um, saying, okay, we're going to first prioritize these core explorable data products that show potential for interoperability. Let's try out the use cases and then learn from that and then reiterate and build maybe the reusable layer of products, right? So you have your source-aligned data products that can be published as explorable products. You learn from those and then create your reusable interoperable products and then incrementally evolve the maturity of that data. I don't think you can, you, you can try to build it with the North Star from the get-go, but the ROI is going to be um, either it, it will end up being unjustified, like four years later, you've put in all this effort, no ROI because your use cases didn't really get the value, or you can take that shift left approach of like, let's try with, even if they're not interoperable, let's try and get some value and then see if there are higher orders of value coming out of that interoperability. Um, So that's how I would try and address it in the internal space. I think there's, in general, in the life sciences space, there's a big need for how we do interoperability in terms of data exchanges happening between the different entities who do clinical studies to how the data is submitted to the regulatory bodies. Um, I think submission to regulatory bodies is very standardized because it needs to be, but the data that comes into an organization or goes out of an organization for further analysis, that is not really standardized and there's a lot of potential for that. But the effort to do that and convincing the vendors is the challenge because I think everyone just it doesn't want to up their responsibility on, um, yeah, I will deliver this data to you in this particular standard or format. It always becomes this negotiation effort. Um, So I think there's a lot of streamlining that can happen in healthcare as well as life sciences from that front. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's that cross organization standard stuff. It just, it's a mess. And and what I've been trying to, to get the community to, to do is to start creating certain standards for those internal things that, that people can just say, oh, not not even that we say, okay, this is something that is open source in the in the way of um we're gonna we're gonna do public iteration on it, we're gonna take public comments or whatever. But it's just like even examples because people are just confused as to what people are doing and and how it looks and how it works. And so um, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating 
um, how many people are, are having to do this kind of from scratch and that they're having to think about this and that this is yet another thing that's blocking people. And it, it sounds like a, a lot of this is, is okay, your first couple of data products, you don't have to figure out your interoperability standard. You can kind of stitch together and then you're just going to have to be willing to iterate once you actually start to, to hit in on those standards. It, it just... Yeah. It doesn't have to be this blocker. It doesn't have to be this big pain in the butt. But at the same point, you do want to make sure, like, I think the the value of each data product in and of themselves, it, you know, I, I've been working on this thing called the SCAE, which is Scott's Confusing Ass Equation, which is how much value do you have for each, like, local maximization of the value of each data product versus the overall mesh maximization of the interoperability. And like you said, not all data needs to interoperate. I think yeah. when I'm talking to startups and stuff, that's the thing that I think they're, they're like, I want to do data mesh. And it's like, no, you shouldn't do data mesh. And it's like, well, but we want it. It's like the interoperability, you can kind of do it on a one-off basis when you really need it between a couple of things. You don't need to put in nearly as much self-serve centralization isn't, isn't a, as big of an issue and you can create, you know, the processes to create these, these, um, data sets in a software type of way, but you don't have to, you don't have to do nearly as much effort around a lot of the other aspects. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's valuable to think about this stuff. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, if you're in startup mode or in your, in your early days, you have the perfect opportunity to adopt the the fundamental best practices, right? Like let's model the data just like you do with like microservices don't have the perfect API endpoints, the first release, right? We iterate and we model the entities, et cetera. And then we kind of build upon it. Either we migrate or we decommission the microservice and we bring up a new one because uh, we've learned so much, uh, uh, about our business in a dramatic way that we not need to expand our model. So I think borrowing a lot of the practices of contract testing, versioning, um, I, I think domain-driven dri- design or data modeling, they're the same. Uh, at the end of the day, they achieve the same thing. They're, I personally haven't found a lot of differences, uh, but that doesn't ever change. So to me, we're really missing the the versioning, contract testing, and something that gives us feedback. And I think contract tests help with that, but you also need another kind of feedback mechanism, which is how many other systems in the universe of our company or enterprise have similar models, because that can encourage you to see opportunities for interoperability and higher orders of value. Like if I stitch my uh, customer data with uh, the, this is an obvious one, customer product data, but uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't know if you have any, Um, but it could be trying to stitch data that we were unaware of that even existed in the enterprise, right? That we hadn't thought about. And now there's this opportunity to make them interoperable. Um, It could be through acquisitions, right? I guess you were talking about uh, there were different kinds of inventory that were getting added into the company we're at. Um, So those kind of systems, you you will over time as you start uh, 
assessing the landscape, you can look for those interoperability opportunities and incrementally build towards it. Yeah, I think those those golden path, easy path tools of, you know, we we've talked about this a few times on, on in different episodes, but uh, that there's this issue of people having to invent things from scratch. So it may be that that people can go out and see that there's a repository of data models, and so that they can get those uh, that inspiration, or they can go and talk to that team and go, "How did you do this? Why did you do this?" And that there's standard data models that the 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 data team can can you know the, the central data team because you're still going to have that whether it's the platform team or or the governance team. I think it's kind of a collaboration between those of. Here is the standard data model, and it's going to be good enough for 60, 70, maybe even 80% of our, our data products once we mature and things like that. You know, it may be that it's, it's, it's not the only data model for the full data product, but it's for, part, you know, one of the tables or whatever, that it's just easy path, easy path, easy path. And so it sounds like these standards can kind of, if you have people that have the, their antenna up and looking for the patterns that they can, <laughs> they can go, Hey, there is a pattern here. We've seen five different people that are doing this thing that all kind of looks the same. Let's develop a standard around this and we'll work with those teams to migrate towards that. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a really, uh, I think you're, you're, you're sparking up a lot of, uh, interesting insights for, for me about what other people have kind of talked about, but they didn't wrap it up again in this really easy to consume package. Um, we, we might've, uh, th- it's kind of funny to leave this at the end, but like interoperability, what, what, what does that term even mean to you? Like what, like, because people, people have such a different concept of, oh, I can just fully stitch this full data product with this other data product versus this part of the data product, this table, this whatever, like wh- where do you think it, it should start and kind of evolve as, as people think about that and, and like that concept internally? That's a very good question. Um, to me, interoperability at the end of the day is that, is that ability to stitch systems Forget about data. It doesn't matter if it's a data set or if it's the firmware or the microservices. The end of the day, to me, interoperability is getting two different systems to talk to each other and get something of higher value out of that. Um, So when I look at it from that base level of I need something of higher value, then I would think about what are the core things I need to do for those two systems to uh, talk to each other, or what is the system I introduce so that it can consume. I don't think you would want to create tight dependencies. You would want to create another system that takes the information from those two systems and stitches it up and encapsulates that complexity there and serves it out. So to me, um, that base thinking is very important in putting like the appropriate contracts, the term. So it's determining the transport layer you want to interoperate on, right. Along with the format of the data, um, the, the data content itself, the schema in which you want to talk about a talk with the two, uh, 
or consumed the uh, the data from the two systems um, and really focusing on that end value you want to deliver. You don't want to boil the ocean either. So it's just do enough to get that value. If there are opportunities for reuse, keep that in mind. Don't, and I guess I'll caution with, you don't want to do too fit for purpose sometimes because you miss the opportunity of reusability. If you see while you're doing that analysis and design, if you find that, hey, there are three other opportunities of value, let's build this with that reusable uh, mindset because they're downstream we can, or in the next couple of months, we can introduce two or three use cases that, that will benefit from this. So I think keeping that reusability of like, we're not going to do it super fit for purpose. If we do, it's a, like you want to account for the cost for being fit for purpose as well. Um, and then make a decision based on your time value and your cost aspect, right? Um, but yeah, so to me, interoperability at the end of the day, doesn't matter if you just talk about data, it's two entities that exist in our system that need to be connected so that we can get higher value. Yeah. And I, and I think that, that look at your return on investment, right. Of is, is there going to be value in reuse? Okay. Start to think yeah. about that reuse, but it's, it's kind of, I don't know how somebody at the organizational level, I think we do need tooling that, that can do this, that can help, potentially service or, or surface the the reusability of there might be more value here, like that we can kind of create some prediction models, some machine learning type of things that can say this might be, um, you know, it, it, almost a recommendation engine for reuse could be like an interesting yeah. concept. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and Sarita Basks had, had also talked about this of like, data products, your initial data product should be fit for purpose with reuse, right? It, you shouldn't go super, super crazy out, out of scope and, and say, okay, well, this person only wants these 15 things, but we're going to give them these 70. We have no idea versus we're going to start with these 15 and we're going to talk to a few other people that might want to consume stuff that's, that is this, that's related to this and that you think about that reuse. So, yeah. I think it's. I think you're 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 hitting on a lot of themes that people have kind of touched on, but not nearly at this depth. So this is going to be super helpful for a lot of folks, and and also just kind of again getting people to get out of their own way when, when thinking yeah. about this interoperability and standards. So, um, well, uh, Sammy, this has been super super awesome. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover or anything that you want to, you know, that, that you think we should kind of wrap up, put a button on it or, or is there any, anything that, that any wise words and sage advice that you'd give to folks? Um, I, I think there are enough wise words out there. Uh, I, I would, I guess, put like my wish out there for what I see to happen in the next couple of years. Um, I, the when I look at data mesh, the self-service infrastructure fairly solved for even building out data products and domain domain oriented ownership. At least in my experience, it's uh, people are seeing value and it's it's 
borrowing from uh, past best practices from software, again, solved for me at least. I think when it comes to that semi-automated or the computational governance that Jamal calls out for and where we start looking at interoperability, um, to me, when I'm doing my research across is there any technology that can help me build out fair data products easily, especially in the life sciences, being selfish about it? Um, I, I think that market or that those patterns and the solutions don't really exist. I'm seeing some interesting articles that are coming out and some interesting POCs. I, I think it's doable, uh, but no one has really uh, packaged and published, oh, this is this is a good pattern to start with and like deliver the value. Um, I myself have opinions on how to do it, but I haven't had the opportunity to truly execute on it. And that's what I look forward to in the next year or two to like truly learn from how can we package all those best practices to get that computational governance where um, people are easily able to build out their fair products as needed, right? Um, to me, that that's sort of missing. Yeah, governance as the enabler—that's part of the platform, right? That it's not one-on-one. Yeah. -on -one, that that you know you have that subject matter expert, or you have that that ability to to pop up to a higher level if you find something. But that there's kind of that first alert and and uh, the kind of initial recommendations. A little bit of a clippy for for building here. Uh, I don't know if you remember Clippy from back in the days. That was the uh, obnoxious little like thing that tried to help you with Microsoft Word. Oh, yeah, I do remember it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, hopefully we can make something with a little bit of a bit better of a UI. Um, but uh, well, again, this has been so awesome. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, best place is that LinkedIn and, and kind of what topics do you want people following up with you about? Uh, LinkedIn is a great spot. And um, yeah, I, I think the federated computational governance principle is where my current focus is. Uh, I'm happy to talk about other uh, topics in data mesh, but that's what I'm really looking forward to uh, kind of making a better dent on uh, in terms of the best practices of implementation around that. Okay. Well, again, this has been so awesome. So th thanks so much for for this and for all the help that it's going to provide everybody. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Samia Rahman, who's the Director of Data and AI with a product focus at CGen. You can find her contact information as well as links to some of the Data Mesh content she's put out in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Datastax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month -month basis. You know, read kind of 
throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.